The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, it is a very big pleasure to be back. It's been a while since I've been here, and I see some familiar faces and a lot of new ones. So um, afterwards, I I hope to talk to many of you. Uh, I had a funny thing happen uh, just before Thanksgiving. Uh, I already knew that I was coming, and I was going back to lead a retreat in New York and also to visit my older brother who lives in the... um, Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. So I was uh, at the United Terminal, and I don't know how many of you know, but at United Terminal there's always some art being displayed on that long walk. And this time it was Japanese toys, which is quite amusing anyway. But as I was walking along, because I had lots of time, I came to one big glass case full of Godzilla's. And when I was in my early 20s, a group of friends and I had performed an entire Godzilla meets uh, King Kong on the Santa Monica Beach in 8mm. So, of course, I had to stop to take a picture of this because I was going to send it to my friend when all of a sudden I hear a voice saying, Hi, Misha! And I look around and there's Gil. (laughs) It's like, of all the places for us to see each other, And it turned out, not only were we in the same terminal, we were on the same plane because Tamara's relatives live 15 minutes from where my brother lives. So uh, it was kind of nice. We had a a little bit of informal time to talk then and then a little bit on the plane. And it was great to see the boys because I haven't seen them. I wouldn't have recognized them. They've gotten so big. So uh, kind of a nice uh, introduction to coming back here and... Uh, seeing everyone and having a chance to share the Dharma with other Dharma groups. You get very involved in your own little Dharma group and, and it's, you have to remember that there's Dharma happening everywhere. And so one of your sister sanghas, or brother sanghas, I don't know, uh, in, uh, on the coast, I go and lecture there fairly regularly actually and uh, That's quite a nice place. If you haven't gone and visited the lighthouse, I highly recommend it. So there's a very famous story. Um, You may have even heard it, even if you're not Zen students, uh, that has to do with teachers and students, which is what I wanted to talk a little bit about today. Uh, This story actually appeared in the collection uh, Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, Uh, with Jack Kornfeld. And there are actually two versions of this story, and this is the one that was in the book, and then I'll come back to the other version later. Zen students are with their masters at least 10 years before they presume to teach others. Nan-in was visited by Tenno, who, having passed his apprenticeship, had become a teacher. The day happened to be rainy, so Tenno wore wooden clogs and carried an umbrella. After greeting him, Nanin remarked, I suppose you left your wooden clogs in the vestibule. I want to know if your umbrella is on the right or the left side of your clogs. Tenno, confused, had no instant answer, and he realized he was unable to carry his Zen every minute.
he became Nanin's pupil and studied six more years to accomplish this every-minute Zen. So in the book, Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, this particular uh, story is in the section called A Little Attention Makes All the Difference. (laughs) Well, we all know about that. That's why we have temple cleaning, right? A little attention. But in the introduction to this section, uh, it says, The secret of beginning a life of deep awareness and sensitivity lies in our willingness to pay attention. Our growth as conscious, awake human beings is marked not so much by grand gestures and visible renunciations as by extending loving attention to the minutest particulars of our lives. Every relationship, every thought, every gesture is blessed with meaning through the wholehearted attention we bring to it. So there are two kinds of inattention in this story. The first, of course, is the obvious one, Tenno's realization that he had no idea which side of his, um, his clogs he had placed his umbrella. He wasn't really thinking about the umbrella or the clogs, you see, when he went in. You have to imagine, he's a brand new teacher. He's been given the blessing by his teacher, go out on the road, you know, go see other teachers, have a little Dharma combat with them, you know, check out your understanding. So he arrives at this temple, and... uh, he knows that this teacher, Nanin, is very well respected, and so he's all excited about what he knows. Right? So he's, he's really just in his head thinking about what he's going to say and how he's going to show this, this temple master what a brilliant student, now teacher, he is. So, of course, he is not at all paying attention in the moment to what he's doing. While he's kicking off his clogs and laying down his umbrella, he's already thinking about this conversation he's going to have. And well, this happens to all of us, right? He was dividing the world into grand gestures, the conversation he was about to have, which was important, as opposed to the minutest particulars Placing his umbrella. It's not so much about placing it particularly perfectly. It's just being aware I'm putting my umbrella down. But the second inattention is in some sense even more crucial. It wasn't even that he couldn't remember whether his umbrella was on the left or the right side. It was that He was so taken aback by the question, he couldn't say anything. There are many teaching stories about that. It has to do with being so completely in the moment that you are always in a state of readiness. This is why my favorite, favorite, favorite story of Suzuki Roshi is 
lots of times he was asked, you know, why do you sit? And I'm sure that he gave a different answer. And I'm sure if you asked any meditation teacher why they sit, you'd get a different answer each time. And probably even different from the same teacher. But on this occasion, he said, I sit because I hope that someday, in the case of an emergency, I just might do the right thing. And I'm always struck by the humility of that. I, I might do the right thing, not that I will do the right thing even. And this is what happens here. Poor Tenno, he's so excited. He thinks he's spent these 10 years and he's really, you know, figured it out. He's going to go on the road and then he's going to teach others. And he gets asked this incredibly simple question. Is your umbrella on the left or is it on the right of your clogs? And he can't say anything. I mean, he could have said, oh, nice to meet you too. (laughs) Because it almost is a little bit rude that this is the first thing that this master asks him. He doesn't say, oh, welcome to my temple. (laughs) Oh, can you tell me which side of your clogs your umbrella is? But he is so unready. He has nothing to say. And so we sit in meditation so that one day, in the case of an emergency, we just might do the right thing. The emergency can be anything. It doesn't have to be somebody being rushed to the hospital. Just the other day, I was sitting with a friend who has gone through a really difficult physical problem over the last year. Major operation, major after effects. And so now, of course, she's feeling the frailty of the human body quite deeply. And it scares her to death. And we were having this conversation over tea. And I didn't know that's what the conversation was going to be about. I didn't realize how scared she had become. And here, here's the big fear she had. What if I find out very soon that something else is going to go wrong and I'm going to have to go through all something like this again? And I was, I was trying to listen as deeply as I could to what the fear was. And I said, well, you could decide not to do anything about it. She said, what do you mean? You don't have to fight every time. So you and I are old enough that if you got told tomorrow that you had cancer on top of everything else that's happened to you, you could decide, okay, this is it. And not do anything about it. It's your choice. With that, she she just gave this huge, (gasps) Now, when push comes to shove, if something does happen, I imagine she will try to do something. But just realizing suddenly that she had the choice put her back in a feeling of control again, made her feel like, oh, okay, the worst case scenario is I could choose to die. 
we're all going to die anyway. She wrote me later, she said, oh, I can't tell you how much it meant to me to talk to you. That just This is a, a very old friend of mine. She said, it just, all of a sudden, I feel so at ease. I just was listening, that's all. And sometimes that's all the emergency is. Someone needing you to listen deeply. Now sometimes this story is told a little differently. Sometimes Tenno is portrayed as non-in student, not a guest visiting teacher, but actually his student of 10 years. And so to test his understanding before he takes his leave, Nanin asks him this question, and Tenno fails spectacularly, and then decides to stay with his teacher for many more years. In the first version, Tenno is just a visiting teacher at the beginning of his teaching career. And in a way, that makes the failure more significant because someone who has been given permission to teach supposedly has developed a deep capacity for attention as well as the ability to respond authentically in the moment. So there's a famous question somebody once asked Master Wu Men, what is the most important thing? And he said, an appropriate response. The key word here being appropriate. Lots of people can make responses. Run around yelling and screaming and tearing their hair out. That's not helpful. (laughs) Probably also not appropriate (laughs) in an emergency. What you're looking for always in a group is the person who maintains their equanimity. Because that person is the one who can look at the situation with their complete mindful attention. And they know exactly what to do in that moment. You go call 911. You get a blanket. You, on the other side. Does anyone know CPR? Just, they know what to do. Afterwards, they might be shaking too, but in the moment, you know, they do the right thing. It's the appropriate response. Now, my original understanding of this story, this book came out, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, was that it was a teaching story about paying attention. And that makes sense because that was the section of the book that it was in. But after 15 years of teaching myself, I'm beginning to realize that there's an underlying message that in some ways is much more significant. How did non-in know what question to ask? He could have said any number of things when Tenno walked in the door. Why did he say that? Again, you have to imagine the scene. Nanin is greeting this young man, 
Tano, who's rushing in to meet him. He kicks off his clogs, throws down his umbrella because he's in such a hurry to go into Dharma combat with this teacher that he's never met. Well, Nanin is doing his part in the Dharma battle and it's over before they've ever entered the ring. He stops him with his one single little question. But even if the story is about his own student, in the first case, it feels a little rude. He doesn't greet him, doesn't offer him a cup of tea. He says, so I bet you could tell me which side of your clogs your umbrella is on. It's a challenging question and appropriate when he knows that this visiting teacher is about to challenge him. With his own student, it wouldn't seem quite so rude because actually it's his teacher's final gift. Are you really ready to go out and teach others? He knows to ask this question in the second case because he knows his student intimately. They've lived together, worked together, meditated together. And he knows that his student is brilliant in many ways, but in this case he knows he's still got this this one blind area, which is he tends to divide the world into important and unimportant. Clogs and umbrella fall into this category. Dharma combat falls into this one. He's trying to help him stop picking and choosing. He asks the simple question, where's the umbrella? And not only can Tenno not answer where it is, he can't answer at all. He's probably sitting there gawping like a fish. Right now, can you tell me where out there your shoes are? Can you tell me the shoes next to them, what they look like? Do you know, I see dozens of uh, jackets. Do you know where on that line your jacket falls? There are a million details of our life all day long. And mostly what we're doing is we're thinking about the next thing that we're going to do and not the thing that we are doing. It's not a bad thing. It just means that you're missing a lot of your life. Because there's actually a great joy in realizing that you have this wonderful watch and that you're placing it right there and that you have a pair of glasses which you may need to read your lecture and you place them right there. To be aware that you're doing these things means you're giving meaning to each moment of your life. And the longer you practice meditation and mindfulness, the more meaning your life then has. The three common threads in all Buddhist practice, whether Vipassana, Tibetan, Zen, Korean, it doesn't matter, Meditation, 
study and the teacher-student relationship. The percentages of each of those is slightly different in all of the different practices, but they are all there. And the teacher-student relationship varies in style and intimacy depending on uh, not only the lineage that you're in, but also the teacher that you have. And it exists for a reason. Humans, particularly Westerners, have this very fundamental belief in their individuality and their individual rights. The self is very important. We've even got songs, you know, I did it my way. Yeah, okay. And one of the very first words children learn is mine. Well, there has to be a me for there to be a mine. It's a very, very strong feeling in us. But Buddhism questions the very existence of this thing I call myself. But at the same time, points to the belief that we have in the self as the root cause of all of our suffering. So we rely on teachers who have penetrated this belief system, who have deeply understood the truth of emptiness, of the fact that there is no permanent, unchanging self of anything. That by the time you leave today, you are different than when you came in. You are different because of the person who sat next to you. You are different because of the air that you're breathing in this room. You are different because there are words coming from me to you and hopefully there will be some words coming from you to me. There is no such thing as a you that is solid, unchanging, fixed, that can be put in a box, tied up, and put on the shelf. It doesn't exist. We see it more clearly with babies. I have, I have two new great, I have a great grandniece and a great grandnephew. And every day they're changing. I don't see them for, you know, a month or two at a time. And it's huge what happens in that month. In adults, we don't see it so much. But the seasons, you see it out there. My pear trees are now almost bare. There's a few yellow leaves. And in a few months, there will be little green buds. And I know that in the intervening time, there's something happening inside the tree and in the roots. It's never the same. So we conventionally have names for all these things. We call it a pear tree, but in fact it's pear tree in motion. <laughs> you know? it's, it's never the same pear tree. It's, it's like calling, we call it a river, but it's never the same water. And the banks are always changing, and yet we call it a river. Because we have to call it something in order to communicate. So teachers, we hope, are the ones who have really deeply understood this truth. Who don't have big attachments to the self and can help us understand non-attachment. I don't say detachment, that, that, that's a dangerous place to go. You don't want to be detached from the world. Non-attachment implies holding everything very lightly, not 
not grasping. And so these teachers guide us through our misapprehensions, which are based on the three roots of suffering that the Buddha talked about. The first one, thirsting, desire, or greed. This is wanting to do everything my way. So there's this famous poem, the Shin Shin Ming, that starts out, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. (laughs) Who has no preferences? From the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you go to bed at night, you like certain things for breakfast. You like a shower. You like to wear certain clothes. You have certain ideas of what it should be like out on the road. (laughs) When I drove here this morning, I thought, oh my goodness, there's no one on the freeway. This is wonderful. (laughs) So even I have my preferences. You know, we have them. The point is not to hold on to them. It's like, okay, when I drive into school tomorrow morning, it's not going to be as easy on the road. Oh well. If I hold on to my preference of wanting there not to be any traffic, I'm going to be disappointed, first of all. And second of all, I'm going to get frustrated and I might even get angry. And the next thing you know, you're flipping off the person on the the other car that you don't know and you don't care about because you are me in your car and you don't care about anybody else because you're the one that has to get to work. And boy, it is a downhill slide from there. The second cause of our suffering is the opposite. It's our aversion, our hatred of things. We say this all the time, by the way. Oh, I really hate fill in the blank. Hate is a very bad, you know, it's a big word. You ought to be real careful of that. But what you notice is, oh, yes, I really, I really hate going to the movies when, or I hate driving on the road when, or, oh, I really don't like, I hate that kind of food. We use that word a lot. Simple aversion, folks. It is not wanting anything that feels unfamiliar, uncomfortable, or undesirable. For instance, sitting for really long periods of time in silence for a lot of people, it's all three of those things. It's unfamiliar, it's uncomfortable, and sometimes pretty undesirable. And yet here you are, Wonderful. That means you have taken your aversion and held it lightly. Yeah, my knees are hurting, or my back is hurting, or my shoulders, or my mind is really busy today. It's okay. This is, this is meditation today. I am busy Buddha today, or I am in pain Buddha, because you are also always moving. You are in motion and dynamic There is no fixed you. And so this is the good thing that you know. In a half an hour, you'll be up and moving. So whatever pain you might be feeling in your knees or your back or whatever busyness of your mind, you'll be going on to the next thing. But when you're doing a two-week or a one-month or a three-month retreat, it's a little harder (laughs) to think that. It's like, oh my... I remember the first time I did a long retreat, an eight-day... I was into the second day and I was already in so much pain. I had, I had this spasm going on below my left spa- scapula that was just making me crazy and I was thinking to myself, if this is how much pain I'm in on the second day, how am I going to make it to the eighth? I'll never do it. 
and all my anxiety arose, and then, of course, the pain got worse, until finally, I think it was the fourth day, I was so tired because we were getting up at 4.30 in the morning and not going to bed until 9.30 at night, that finally I just sort of gave up and said, well, okay, here I am again. And I just sat, even though I was in pain, even though I was tired, and it was amazing. Once I gave up fighting it, I mean, it wasn't that it went away. It's just that it didn't bother me so much anymore. It said, Suzuki Roshi once said, you know, eventually you won't have difficulty with your difficulties. And that's sort of the way it is. That's what aversion, aversion is having difficulty with your difficulties. But when you practice long enough and you realize you're causing your own suffering with all that upset about your difficulty, maybe you can hold it a little lighter. Then there's the third cause of suffering. And this is the one that's either translated as ignorance or delusion. It is ignorance exactly of this ever-changing self of the emptiness of all things. There isn't anything that is going to last forever or be permanent in any way. Everyone you love is going to die. Everything you care about is going to disappear eventually. Maybe you die first. Nothing, nothing lasts forever. And if the scientists are to be believed, if we live another million years, even this planet is not going to be here. But, of course, we aren't going to be here either. So, no reason to get too anxious. We can't change this. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has these wonderful five recollections. It says, you know, basically, I can't do anything about illness. I can't do anything about old age. I can't do anything about death. Everyone I love is going to be taken away from me. All of these things are true. The only thing I can count on, the, the ground upon which I stand, are my actions. My appropriate response. Because we can't change it. So another friend of mine last week, I, I'm, I'm sure you have the same experience. You're going along, you're kind of reviewing all of your friends, acquaintances, co-workers, sangha friends, and, you know, it's like, okay, this person's got this difficulty and this one's, you know, out of a job. And, you know, you kind of know where everybody is and, and you're trying to be supportive for all of their sakes. And then out of the blue you get an email from someone who you just saw two weeks ago who was perfectly fine, and now they have stage four melanoma. Just like that. And they're writing and they're saying, I have some bad news. They're writing this in an email to you. And you open up thinking you're just going to get one of your normal little emails. And it's like, what? I just saw you two weeks ago. You were perfectly fine. So it turns out this person has melanoma in a lymph node that they had done a biopsy of. Her husband got on the internet. I urge you not to do this. By definition, 
melanoma in a lymph node is stage four, just by definition. And it's an old definition, 15 years ago definition. So he tells her, you have stage four cancer. Of course, she flips out. They all flip out. They come down here finally. She's been doing tests at Stanford all week. Okay, turns out, first of all, no cancer in the brain. That's the huge, she's so relieved. But then it turns out after they do all the tests, the only place in her whole body is the one lymph node that got biopsied. And she finds out from her doctor that the definition of stage 4 melanoma is an old definition based on old technology and old uh, medical procedure. So they've gotten themselves all upset. Their children, their, their young girls are devastated. They're losing their mother so early. And she is going in for major surgery next week, and she's having all the lymph nodes on her left side removed under her arm. And she's going to be fine. I'm pretty sure. But there it is, right there. Death right in front of you when you least expect it. And your job is to remember your meditative mind. It's like standing in the middle of a very soft, silted lake. If you're running around in it, it gets muddy very fast. And then it's very hard to see where you're going. Stand still. Let the mud settle. And then it's clear water again. And then you move slowly the definition of equanimity. Now, I don't know if we can do it. I don't know if when the doctor calls and says, your biopsy is malignant, whether we can stand still. But it is my hope that in that emergency, I just might do the right thing, even for myself. This is why we sit. And this is why we have teachers to help us learn how to do that. Teachers get to know us intimately if we give them half a chance. And they can observe how we manifest suffering, where we get caught, whether we're the one that gets caught in thirsting desire, or we're the one that gets caught in aversion. That's my category. I'm, I'm in the aversion, hatred, annoyance, irritation, anger category. Okay? That's where I get caught. I don't like it. I work on it all the time, but that is the place that trips me up. And I've had wonderful teachers, including Gil, to help me with this. The teacher is the one who sees us pretty clearly because they can be objective and because they have experienced themselves. They have long, long years of practice. But the most important thing about a teacher is that they are willing to tell us what they observe when no one else will. 
you might think that your best friend or your partner or your children or your parents will tell you what they see when you are misbehaving or stuck. It isn't always the case. In fact, it's often not the case because there's a lot at stake. You have to live with this person 24-7 a lot of the times. And so the chance of them being completely honest with you lessens a little bit. The teacher doesn't have to live with you. And, And you don't have to have a big argument with the teacher about it. The teacher doesn't say, you have to believe this, but I'm just telling you what I'm noticing. You know, go sit with that. So Suzuki Roshi once wrote, it was like a a throwaway line in one of his lectures, um, you will have trouble with your teacher. I always thought that was very amusing because he wasn't talking about the kind of trouble of a teacher who's abusive, you know, or or has really um, bad flaws or habits like alcoholism or, uh, you know, sexual abuse or something like that. He wasn't talking about that kind of difficulty. He was talking about the kind of difficulty where a teacher might say something to us by telling us the truth about ourselves that might hurt us, hurt our feelings, or make us uh, a little upset. The story of Nanin and Tenno is exactly about this. And it's everyone's story. Nan-in must have been a very fine teacher because he completely saw Tenno. Whether the Tenno is the visiting teacher or Nan-in's own student, the fact is he saw him coming down that corridor and he thought to himself, okay. And he knew exactly what to ask him, to stop him dead in his tracks. To his credit, Tenno is also a great student. He is probably chagrined, maybe a bit embarrassed, to be seen so clearly with all his faults, like he's carrying them out in front of him for everyone to see. But he is wise enough to know that here is someone who can help him. Here is someone who saw right through him and he asks to stay with him for six more years. One of my favorite stories that Blanche Hartman of San Francisco Zen Center uh, tells is when she was... uh, a very young, not young chronologically, but young Zen student, she went to her teacher, Mel Weitzman, and she said, everybody's talking about this Tassahara monastery. What, why does everybody, what, what's the big deal about Tassahara? And he said, well, it's a place where everybody gets to see you so much that you might as well see yourself. And I have always, I mean, what a brilliant answer. Because the fact is, we actually think all of our bad habits are hidden. 
right? We think nobody notices them. When in fact, it's like we're wearing a costume that has them all on the sleeves. Everybody knows who we are. Everyone sees us. Why don't we decide to see ourselves? So, so Tenno realizes that Nan-In has really seen him and maybe his last master wasn't quite so clear. And he realizes what a gift this is. Yes, he's embarrassed. Who wouldn't be? You know, he can't say anything. He's completely stuck. But Nan-In is behaving like a total grandma. And I say this with the deepest affection and admiration for grandmothers. I was recently told a story about a grandmother who I've known all my life, not my grandmother, but she has a grandchild who apparently um, has not been being raised with um, any manners. And this child was at his other grandmother's having a dinner one time, and the grandmother actually got up from the table and said, you are the worst-mannered child I have ever known, and walked away. And the little boy was devastated by this. So he went to his other grandmother when he went to visit her, and he said, Grandma, is this true? Do I have bad manners? He really didn't know. And this grandmother was wise enough to say, Yes, it's true, you don't have very good manners, but if you want, I'll teach you. (gasps) Would you, Grandma? And she went out, she bought a book on manners, you know, probably Miss Manners Guide for Children or whatever. And then she sat him down at a table and she showed him how to undo his napkin and what the forks and knives were all supposed to do. What a gift. Manners are not some old-fashioned, archaic idea. They are the civilized way in which we can all get along with large groups of people. Manners means you aren't going to flip somebody off while you're on the freeway. You're going to say, oh dear, well, have a good day, and drive on. She, she was a grandmother to him. She was a teacher. This is a child who will be happier and suffer less because a teacher appeared when he asked for it. If we are not willing to hear the truth from our teachers, who are we going to hear it from? A teacher is not your friend in the normal sense. They're not necessarily going to go to the movies with you. They might have a meal with you. But the teacher is the person who is willing to be completely truthful, as kindly as possible, and mirror what you bring to him or her so that you can grow in kindness, in compassion, and in wisdom. One of the most famous lines in uh, the Zen literature is by Zen Master Dogen, It says, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to manifest 
the entire world. To study the way is to study the self. Absolutely. There is nothing else we can study. Uh, I, I see all of you, but I don't really know all of you. There's only one person in the entire universe I know this well. <laughs> this one here. I get to be the scientist and the experiment all at the same time. Because this is where we have to start. This is the one we know the best. This is the one whose mind continues to appear that we can watch and observe. But then Dogen says, to study the self is to forget the self. It only means stop being so self-preoccupied, so self-centered. When we are totally involved, this silly self kind of disappears. When you are deeply involved with a conversation with someone you care about, when you are paying attention to the ringing of a bell, when you are doing anything with mindful attention, you have forgotten the small self. You have connected and manifest the entire world. There's only one thing that I wish that Dogen had said differently. When he said, to study the way is to study the self, I wish he had added, for a very long time. (laughs) I wish you a wonderful holiday season, a mindful, happy new year. And I hope that unlike Tenno, when the emergency arises, you will have the appropriate response. Thank you.